investigating the untold stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. I think sometimes we think of the AIDS crisis as a time when gay men were, um, you know, seen as lepers uh, by wider society. But I was struck by the number of gay men who told me that fear within the gay community was also very prevalent. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Just the fear and the uncertainty kind of permeated every community. And that's what we tried to capture too, that people felt especially afraid because they were kind of rejected from wider society. And then even within their own community, there was a lot of rejection as well. On our podcast, we like to share the work of others who work with Religion News Service and other organizations to educate and report on religion, ethics, and belief. One such person is Michael O'Loughlin, who is here with us today from Chicago. Michael is the reporter for a new podcast documentary called Plague, the Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church, a six-episode podcast which is produced by America Media. Michael, welcome and thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning. What is this uh, documentary podcast you're doing and why did you do it? Yeah, Plague is a documentary that is something of a cross between a reported piece and an oral history project that's trying to capture the stories of Catholics who lived, worked, and grieved through the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. Um, We've done dozens of interviews over the past couple of years with Catholic priests, uh, nuns, lay people who worked in healthcare, ministry, uh, activists who took on the Catholic Church, uh, and some of whom returned to the church years later. And we wanted to do this because as a reporter covering the church, I'm used to writing about uh, stories related to LGBT people uh, in the Catholic Church. And There's a lot of tension and challenges in this work, and I thought there must be people who kind of have experience from another time related to this subject. And sure enough, um, I found out that this time period, the 80s and 90s, was a big collision between LGBT people and the Catholic Church, and I wanted to learn some of those stories that haven't been captured yet. Let's take a listen to a little, little sample of this podcast documentary you did. This is a sample of the podcast called Plague from America Media. It's mysterious, it's deadly, and it's baffling medical science. As someone who's gay and Catholic, I'm always curious how others manage this sometimes complex identity. No time in modern history was more volatile for gay Catholics than at the height of the AIDS epidemic. This is Jesus Christ. I'm in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral on Sunday. Inside, Cardinal O'Connor is busy spreading his lies and rumors about the position of lesbians and gays. We're here to say, we want to go to heaven too. So I've spent the last few years meeting with dozens of people who were right there in the middle of it. People vilified, oh, the fact that you're gay, oh my God, that's a sin right there, you know. People who fought, worked, and grieved through it. Fear, lots of fear, lots of fear. I can't spend all of my time and energy angry and fighting the church when uh, I have to use it for survival. The only people to stay behind and take care of the dying and the sick at that epidemic were the Sisters of Charity. We were a Catholic hospital under the auspices of perhaps the most conservative archbishop in the country. One, I was black. Two, I was gay. And three, I had AIDS. 
So there was a lot of discrimination to go around. What kept me with all that was the Catholic faith. I think if you're gay, you get used to rejection for what you are. In some ways, don't you think? Listen to Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church on World AIDS Day, December 1st. Michael, that's pretty strong stuff. Did you have any problems gathering all of this material? And uh, uh, are you pointed at some kind of general conclusion here? It's a good question. Uh, It's really emotional stuff, like you said. Um, This was a dark time for a lot of people. And uh, it was difficult for people to talk about, to try to relive this time. Uh, During a reporting trip to San Francisco, where we profile a Catholic parish in the middle of the Castro Uh, I interviewed uh, close to 10 people, and most of them uh, were brought to tears during the interviews because they haven't kind of relived these stories uh, in a visceral way in in many years. So that that was a challenge, um, sort of having people confront and share uh, very personal parts of their lives. Uh, I, I would say we are reporting these stories as we capture them and letting listeners come to their own conclusions about what the role of the church was during the AIDS crisis. I would just say for me... I have learned a lot of history about how the LGBT community and the Catholic Church interacted in the 80s and 90s, history that I wasn't aware of before, uh, simply because I'm too young. And I think a lot of these stories are just not passed on to younger people. So it was a real privilege to be able to talk to people who were there on the front lines at the time. Do you want to talk about some of the more significant uh, stories and pieces of history that you heard? One I didn't know about was that the first real meeting on the subject of AIDS took place in the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's a great story from a guy called David Pace, who is featured in our first episode. Uh, David works for the Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was an HIV and AIDS education organization founded in the 80s. In the first episode, he tells us a little bit about how in the early days, GMHC did not have a place to meet. And they were really concerned that people were not receiving proper education about how to slow the spread of HIV. And so David, because he was involved in his parish in Greenwich Village, he decided he would ask the priests if they could use uh, the school gymnasium because it was a big open space where there'd be no people in the evening. So he went to them and they said, sure, of course, um, whatever you need for your community. So that night uh, they showed up, but there were so many people who came to get educated about HIV that they actually moved the meeting to inside the sanctuary. So David, he kind of jokes when he says this, but he says the first meeting of GMHC was held inside a Catholic church in New York. And he kind of talks about how it was not a delicate conversation. These were really, you know, graphic questions about how HIV was spread. And he said the educators gave candid answers and the goal was to protect people, to give them information so they could protect themselves. So he kind of says, you know, the, the church has been involved in HIV and AIDS from the very earliest days. One of the things that uh, interested me during that period, and I was very much alive during the period running the big New York public television station, and on, on numerous occasions, strongly approached at our board meetings and on the air by the gay men's health crisis and later ACT UP. Uh, act up uh, uh, really made some demands on us and I used to look at them and say to them you folks are really suffering and many of you are dying and why are you attacking us public television we do more programs on this subject than everybody else combined and they said no matter how much you do it's not enough 
And I was always so taken by by their strength and by their desire to get the word out. Yeah, that, that's something that we heard from um, other people as we did the interviews as well, especially uh, Sister Karen Heffelstein. She's a member of the Sisters of Charity of New York, which ran St. Vincent's Hospital. And the hospital, even though now today it's known as uh, something of a haven for gay men in the 80s and 90s during the AIDS epidemic, uh, she said early on there was a group of ACT UP activists who took on the hospital. Uh, they actually held a big protest inside the ER waiting area because even though that this hospital was a place where gay men were being treated for HIV, and they, they felt that the hospital staff wasn't always treating them with the respect they deserved. And Sister Karen said the same thing. She said, you know, I saw the anger and rather than, you know, getting upset and defensive, we stopped and said, what can we do differently to make this a better place for this suffering community? And that, that really struck me um, as a Christian response, as a Catholic response. What can we do better to serve people? And Sister Karen's story is told in the second episode, along with um, other people who worked at St. Vincent's, as how this Catholic hospital became sort of the, the center uh, meeting place for, for gay men during the AIDS crisis. The Sisters of Charity are an amazing group of women. And uh, you point out that in New York, which was then one of the most conservative uh, Catholic uh, archdioceses in America, um, these women uh, came out and strongly supported people with AIDS. People, and that was a time when you didn't, when people didn't know whether if you shook hands with somebody who had AIDS that you'd get it yourself. It was a sense of, well, plague is the right word, of like leprosy. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. Uh, something else I was struck by was the, the amount of fear that was present everywhere. Um, I think sometimes we think of the AIDS crisis as a time when gay men were, um, you know, seen as lepers uh, by wire society. But I was struck by the number of gay men who told me that fear within the gay community was also very prevalent. Um, I interviewed a doctor, uh, Ramon Torres, who ran the AIDS clinic at St. Vincent's. And he said that there was a lot of fear in the gay community because there was not enough uh, resources put into education about HIV. And then he said there was a lot of stigma around uh, gay men who had HIV from other gay men. So just the fear and the uncertainty kind of permeated every community. And that's what we tried to capture, too, that people felt especially afraid because they were kind of rejected from wider society. And then even within their own community, there was a lot of rejection as well. Um, so it, it was a very uh, complicated time. I don't need to tell you that you, you lived through it. But for me, learning about it kind of for the first time, I, I just it's, it's hard to imagine what it would have been like. I can tell you personally, it was really rather amazing. And none of us, none of us knew what to do. You have six episodes of this podcast. Uh, you're still making them, I assume. What, uh, w w what do they encompass? What are, what are the different uh, episodes? Sure. So we, we spend a fair bit of time in New York. Uh, three of the episodes cover um, events and people who lived and worked in New York. Uh, one is David Pace, who I mentioned, the, one of the uh, original volunteers at GMHC. The second is on St. Vincent's, where we interview Sister Karen, uh, Dr. Torres, um, we have some audio from an ACT UP activist. Uh, and then the third episode, we profile a Catholic priest named Father William Hart McNichols. Um, I had a chance to uh, meet Father Bill uh, and get to know him a bit over the past several months. And his story is fascinating. And we, we used him because we wanted to show how young Catholic uh, pastoral care providers, so in this case a priest, responded to the overwhelming need. Uh, because while... HIV and AIDS was sort of a unique situation at the time. 
because so many young people were dying, they had the same kind of questions and fears that anyone facing a terminal illness has. And uh, even though there was a fraught relationship between the church and the gay community, many of these young men were turning to priests and sisters to deal with their uncertainties about death, their fear. Uh, and so we, we talked to Bill about how we approached this subject. And Bill has a whole nother added complex layer because he actually came out as gay in the 80s. Uh, a decision he said gave him some personal and professional setbacks, but he said it was important because he wanted to break down any barriers between him and the people he was ministering to. Uh, so when we leave New York, uh, we go to San Francisco, where we profiled Most Holy Redeemer Parish, uh, which was sort of a kind of a dying parish uh, in the middle of the Castro as the neighborhood went from sort of a white working class area to a predominantly gay area. And we cover how the parish transformed itself to really serve the gay community and became a meeting place for uh, gay men with AIDS in the, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then we get back to my part of the country, Illinois, and we profile a Catholic sister who opened one of the first AIDS clinics in this part of the country. She was down in Belleville, Illinois, sort of a small city outside St. Louis. Uh, and then finally, we wrap up in the finale uh, talking about the state of HIV and AIDS care in the Catholic Church today. Uh, what are the challenges? This is very much an ongoing crisis, even though I think a lot of people think of HIV as something that happened in the past. Uh, we, we look at what the church is doing today, especially uh, overseas, where so many of its resources are uh, in the developing world. Uh, so it, it kind of gives a, a big picture of what HIV and AIDS care in the United States was during the height of the epidemic. And then we conclude with some of the challenges facing um, facing the, the continued fight to eradicate HIV today. Has the church, in your view, in your journalistic view, come a long way, changed its uh, approach uh, as the broader society has? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. And something I've been interested in asking people who dealt with LGBT issues in the Catholic Church in the 80s and 90s. I always say, you know, is it, is it better today? Uh, we've seen such a rapid advancement for gay people. Uh, just, you know, same-sex marriage has only been legal in the entire United States for less than a decade now. And I, I have to say, a, a lot of people say no. It was actually easier back in the 70s and 80s because the church kind of adopted a don't ask, don't tell policy. Uh, that's at least unofficially how they saw it. And they said there was sort of this inverse relationship the more accepted that gay and lesbian people became in society, the less the church in terms of the institution accepted them. And they say today, because gay people, uh, gays, lesbians, um, and transgender people are more widely accepted, the church seems to be cracking down a bit. So it, it's been a little complicated, people say, because of Pope Francis, who has made overtures to the LGBT community. But in general, I've heard that uh, there's still a long way to go. And then there are, of course, uh, works by uh, people like Father Martin, a Jesuit priest on the subject of LGBT and uh, and how he feels the church uh, is dealing with it and should, which is a pretty powerful piece and, uh, and I think a healthy one. Yeah, uh, Jim has been a great colleague and supporter of this project from the beginning. Um, and I think he comes down somewhere in the middle, too. I mean, he's... He likes to hold up examples of LGBT Catholics who are thriving in the church, who kind of have taken their place, but also the challenges. I mean, as a, as a reporter, I write often about uh, teachers who have been fired from their jobs after their marriages go public, um, or uh, gay church musicians who a new pastor comes in, finds out about their orientation, and lets them go. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges for people, and I think 
one of the one of the things I like about working at America with the Jesuits is they have the courage to kind of highlight the good and the bad. So allowing us to profile people who have uh, stuck around the church despite the challenges they face as a gay or lesbian Catholic, and then also those who have felt they had to step away. And that's very much what you get in Plague, the podcast. People who have seen the good side and the bad side of the church, but have a story they want to share. This podcast is very well produced, and it's very powerful to listen to. Can you give me a few of the stories uh, uh, that most touched you being the reporter on this podcast? Sure. Yeah. No, it, it is an amazing uh, product to hear in the end. We had a great team um, at America Media who helped out with this. And I, I would say there are a number of stories that stuck with me. Uh, one in particular was a guy named Thomas Ellerby. Uh, he lives in Oakland, California. Uh, back in the 90s, early 90s, he lived in the Bay Area near San Francisco, and he was a member of Most Holy Redeemer, uh, the parish that we profile. And he told me that um, he said he faced three kinds of discrimination back in the early 90s. He is gay, he's African-American, and he had AIDS. And he said that this was a really tough time for him, uh, that he just kind of felt rejection um, from all parts of society. And when he found Most Holy Redeemer, he said that he felt at home and he felt safe. And I, I was surprised because he told me, he acknowledged, he's like, that this is mostly a, you know, a white church. It was mostly white gay men, but he still said he felt embraced. And as a lifelong Catholic, he felt that he had found his home. Uh, and what I liked about Thomas's story was he said that life was certainly challenging, like that those uh, triple threat of discrimination, as he put it. But at the parish, he said he was able to kind of forget about that sometimes. And he told some stories that were a little lighter than the ones we hear on the podcast. He talked about, um, especially the Christmas parties at Most Holy Redeemer, which he said were a lot of fun. He said the parish would go all out. They would turn the church hall into uh, sort of like this Christmas, <laughs> Christmas land and bring in professional cooks who volunteered their services. There'd be games, uh, people in costume, drag queens. He said the priests would come, and it's just a really good time. And it allowed him for a night to kind of forget some of the challenges he faced. Um, and, that, and that's what I liked about this. This was a really difficult time for people, but there were also some moments of levity where they could forget about, uh, about the challenges they face. And uh, another example, you and I are speaking a few weeks before Christmas. And for some reason, as I was reporting this um, over the last couple of years, Christmas kept coming up as a time when even people who were really sick, they seemed to rebound a little bit. And at St. Vincent's in New York, we uh, learned about uh, the Christmas parties that would be held on the AIDS ward there. Uh, the place would be kind of transformed, uh, Christmas trees, decorations, uh, <laughs> A couple act-up volunteers would dress as Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus. There'd be some drag shows going on. Uh, and the Catholic sisters who ran the place kind of took part, and they were there to share in the festivities. So it was, it was kind of inspiring to me that even in the midst of all this darkness, there were still these light points where uh, people, and Catholics included, who were able to sort of rely on their faith and their joy to uh, make the most of what they were being given in life. Of course, a big part of uh, anyone's faith is hope and uh, embracing uh, the embracing power of uh, the creator over all of them. Where, where does the gay community stand today? Are, and, the, and, the, and the Catholic Church and other churches, are they being more embraced? Are they feeling the warmth of the power of faith? 
or do they still feel strong rejection? That is a good and complicated question. So in one of the early episodes, we profile a group called Dignity. Uh, and Dignity was an organization started for LGBT Catholics, uh, I think back in the 60s or 70s. And by the 80s, they sort of had a, pre- a presence in big cities all across the United States. Um, In 1986, most of the groups were expelled from Catholic parishes and Dignity sort of went its own way. And some dioceses instituted their own LGBT ministries. And I I think that split still exists today. Uh, Gay and lesbian Catholics who want to participate in the kind of institutional church and who have managed to find a home, maybe at an accepting parish or with a priest who they... uh, feel like accepts them for who they are. And then other Catholics who say, no, the institutional church still doesn't have a place for me and I need something else. And that's a lot of them you see in groups like Dignity. And I, I think there's a lot of debate. I mean, one of the challenges for people in my generation, I'm 34, uh, is just, I mean, a lot of millennials don't uh, participate in organized religion generally. And a lot of them cite the church's resistance to LGBT people as a reason why. Uh, so it's still very much, even as we see more acceptance um, in wider society, I think the church has not quite gotten there yet. And young people especially are very perceptive to this. Uh, so I, I keep hearing again and again, there's a lot of work to do on this area. But for the gay and lesbian and trans Catholics who decide to stay, I think they are, uh, I think we are carving a, a niche for ourselves uh, in a way that maybe wasn't done in our previous generations. Is Pope Francis helping in this area? I think so. Um, I mean, from that pre- first interview he gave uh, in which he said the church had become too obsessed on issues, including gay marriage, uh, that seems to signal a shift. And then he's met with a number of gay Catholics and offered his support to them, urged them to stay in the church. Uh, it does seem like, you know, there's a couple steps forward with Pope Francis. And then, you know, he seems to maybe stumble a little bit when it comes to affirming LGBT people. But overall, I've heard um, from critics of the church uh, and from fans of Pope Francis uh, that overall, yeah, he's, he's trying to change the tone. Um, and something else that I think is sometimes lost in media coverage of the church um, is that at the parish level, there's a lot of LGBT Catholics who have found a home. And that sort of the neuralgic fights that we see among some church leaders and activist groups don't always trickle down to the parish and that you do see a lot of LGBT people involved in the church at that level. Uh, so I think that's something that's a little underreported. And so I, I try to do my best. It's, it's difficult sometimes, but I try to do my best to highlight those stories as well. Michael, you're uh, covering a wide range of issues in religion, uh, particularly Catholic uh, religion, uh, based in the Midwest. Uh, what are some of the big things you're looking at right now? What are the, what are the issues you're tracking? Yeah, so for the, <laughs> for the past several months, I've been focus exclusively on on this podcast. So I joke with people, it's like I'm living in the 1980s and 90s. So it's been kind of a a nice break from the daily news cycle. But uh, as I get back into into this kind of daily beat that I'm on, uh, one of the things I'm really fascinated with is how religious groups are setting themselves up to be players in the 2020 election, Um, especially in the Democratic primary. I think a lot of young people have stepped away from institutional religion. So I think some campaigns are sort of stepping back from doing faith outreach. But at the same time, we see some candidates really making a play for uh, people of faith on the, on the political left. And that's what I've been interested in. Um, even in the Catholic Church, which 
tends to be viewed as a more conservative institution politically. Uh, there's been some organizations and some groups who are really making an effort to highlight the more progressive side of their faith. Um, I've been intrigued by, there's a group in Iowa, a Catholic worker group, that's been really um, strongly promoting their message about supporting refugees and migrants in Iowa. And they are unabashed in their faith and in their work. So I'm trying to chronicle, like, what, are the, what are these stories happening under the radar with uh, Catholic groups in the 2020 election? You're a relatively young reporter, at least young compared to me, and uh, covering the issue of faith. And we recently uh, discussed the demographics of faith and religion in general in America, noting that virtually all religions, all religious faith uh, is uh, going down as far as the as its numbers go and the category of nons, non-affiliated kind of people who might have some kind of faith but nothing organized seem to be going up, especially in the millennial category. Any comments on that and, and any do you see anything happening? Yeah, no, this is very much um, a topic in interfaith dialogue because like you said, every religious group is dealing with this. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> I don't know uh, if there's any um, <laughs> good answers or even uh, hopeful signs right now about reversing this trend. I think the the pull of secularism is very strong. Um, I think the the uh, scandals that the Catholic Church has endured over the past couple of decades has turned a lot of people off. And uh, I, I mean, I don't think this is a bad thing, but I think people are much more comfortable today to identify as not being religious or not part of a religious institution. So in a way, I think some of these stats are just perhaps more truthful than they might have been a couple of decades ago when people weren't as comfortable identifying as non-religious. So, I mean, I, I think that there are uh, signs of hope in places where you see young people of faith um, involved in social justice work that's motivated by their faith, who uh, something I'm intrigued by is people beginning to be turned off by technology, uh, kind of the, the invasive way that screens have invaded our lives, and who see in faith an opportunity to connect with one another and connect uh, with something more transcendent than we're used to. Uh, that's something I'll be exploring a little bit in the new year as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, is <laughs> are there challenges for sure? Um, and I think it's going to be uh, just getting more and more difficult for um, the institutional church going forward. But there are points of light as well, like I said, where young people are approaching faith in a new way. Journalist and the main reporter of a new podcast created by America Media called Plague, the Untold Story of AIDS and the Catholic Church, a six-episode documentary podcast well worth listening to. And, Michael, thank you very much for being with us from Chicago. Bill, thank you. I appreciate it. Our guest was journalist and national correspondent for America Media, Michael O'Loughlin, talking about his new podcast reporting series, Plague, the Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.